Right, well, it's good to see everybody here this morning, and uh, I invite you to take your copy of Scripture and turn to Mark, uh, Mark chapter 10. And we have been in a series in the Gospel of Mark, and uh, just working through one passage at a time. And uh, as we're working through, we've come to Mark chapter 10, and I'm going to be reading for us this morning uh, verses 1 through 12. And as I read these verses, then we'll pray, and uh, we'll consider what God has to say to us from His Word. So Mark chapter 10, and I'll begin reading for us verse 1, and and I do want to mention that if you're using one of the Bibles there in the chairs in front of you, uh, you'll find it on 845 and 846. So do encourage you to take you a copy of Scripture and follow along with us. Mark chapter 10, and I'll begin reading in verse 1. And he left there and went to the region of Judea and beyond the Jordan, and crowds gathered to him again. And again, as was his custom, he taught them. And Pharisees came up, and in order to test him, asked, Is it lawful for a man to divorce his wife? He answered them, What did Moses command you? They said, Moses allowed a man to write a certificate of divorce and to send her away. And Jesus said to them, Because of your hardness of heart, he wrote you this commandment. But from the beginning of creation, God made them male and female. Therefore, a man shall leave his father and mother and hold fast to his wife. And the two shall become one flesh. So they are no longer two, but one flesh. What therefore God has joined together, let not man separate. And in the house, the disciples asked him again about this matter. And he said to them, whoever divorces his wife and marries another commits adultery against her. And if she divorces her husband and marries another, she commits adultery. Amen. Let's go to the Lord in prayer. Father, we thank you for your word, and we thank you for the teaching and instruction of Jesus that reveals to us your way in all areas of life, and even as we see this morning in particular as it relates to marriage. Father, I pray that you would give us wisdom now as we turn to your word. I pray, Father, that we would experience the reality of you loving us through your word as we consider what you have to teach us this morning from your scriptures. And it's through Jesus Christ, our Lord, we pray. Amen. Well, given the breakup of the family in our larger society, and we have to say as well in the church, it's apparent that the church needs to offer clear, careful, biblical teaching on the subject of marriage and divorce. However, unfortunately, I think it's also the case that we oftentimes find the church is unwilling to speak on this issue. Not just marriage exclusively, because there's many who will talk about different biblical skills and patterns and examples that you can follow in order to try to better your marriage. But in particular, this area area of marriage and how that relates to divorce and, and these two matters. And given that, that the church is not usually speaking on this matter or perhaps is unwilling to speak on this matter, we ask ourselves the question, is it because we as the church don't have anything to say? Like we see the problem and we see the breakup of family and society and in the church, but we, and we want to say something, we want to help, but we just don't really have anything to contribute. Well, no, I don't believe that's the case. In fact, I think as we turn to the scriptures, we see that we do have something to say and I would argue that, in fact, the church has really the only viable solution to this dilemma. 
So why is the church often silent? I believe that it boils down to fear. One is fear of offending, because the teachings of the Bible on this matter are oftentimes countercultural and difficult to swallow. We remember what happened to John the Baptist as we've been studying through the Gospel of Mark, what happened to John the Baptist when he addressed the subject of marriage and divorce. He called out King Herod because King Herod was in an unlawful marriage, and Herodias, Herod's wife, had him beheaded. So you can understand that there might be fear of offending. But there's also another fear that I think is very real and genuine, and that is the fear of hurting or crushing others who have been affected by divorce. We recognize that divorce is very personal and can be very, very messy. It's not always black and white. It is destructive and very painful. And so when we speak about these matters, we must speak with sensitivity, with humility, and with grace. Having said that, I think it's also clear from the Scriptures that we must speak. In order to be faithful to God's Word, out of love for our own families, out of a love and a desire for the good of our own homes and our children and for the glory of God, we must speak. And so by God's grace, that's what we'll attempt to do this morning, to go to the Scriptures and to speak what is here with love and with grace. I want us to consider our passage this morning in four divisions or under four headings. First, the culture and divorce. Secondly, Jesus and marriage. Third, Jesus and remarriage. And then fourth, Jesus' marriage and discipleship. I'll repeat each of those as we walk through the passage, and I think you'll see that each of these headings reflect what's being said in the text. So first of all, the culture and divorce. Look there in verses 1 through 5 of chapter 10, and we read these words. And he left there and went to the region of Judea and beyond the Jordan, and crowds gathered to him again. And again, as was his custom, he taught them. And Pharisees came up, and in order to test him, asked, Is it lawful for a man to divorce his wife? And he answered them, what did Moses command you? They said, Moses allowed a man to write a certificate of divorce and to send her away. And Jesus said to them, because of your hardness of heart, he wrote this commandment. Now, to gain a fuller appreciation of what's taking place here and a fuller appreciation of Jesus' teaching in these verses, we need to have an understanding of the cultural context in which Jesus was speaking. So in verse 2, the Pharisees ask the question, is it lawful for a man to divorce his wife? And really the debate, so they ask this question, but the debate really centered around uh, this text that the Pharisees cited in verse 4. So you see it in verse 4. They said, Moses allowed a man to write a certificate of divorce to send her away. Okay? So, So that's what Moses stated. That's actually a citation from Deuteronomy chapter 24, verse 1, which makes a provision for a man to divorce his wife if, and this is how it's written in Deuteronomy, if he finds, quote, some indecency in her, end of quote, okay? So then the debate raged. That was Moses' command in Deuteronomy chapter 24, and now this debate has come, okay, well, what does indecency mean? Is it lawful for a man to divorce his wife? And what does this matter of indecency mean? Now, there were two major schools of thought on this matter. There was the school of Shema, 
which was more conservative, took the more conservative interpretation of the passage. And they said that divorce was not permissible except in the case of sexual impropriety, such as adultery. So the meaning, this is what the school of Shema said, the meaning of the word indecency in Deuteronomy is sexual misconduct or unfaithfulness. Okay, that's what Moses was getting at. Now, there was another school of interpretation, the school of Hillel, which was a more liberal interpretation of the passage. They said that divorce was permissible in almost any, on almost any and every ground imaginable. And so they interpreted indecency very broadly. For example, they made provisions for a man to divorce his wife if she messed up his dinner. Okay? So, very, very broad, okay? Let, let, me, let me give you a citation here from the Mishnah, uh, which was a record of rabbinical teachings, and, and it summarizes well the debate. So it says, quote, The school of Shammai say, A man may not divorce his wife unless he has found unchastity, that would be sexual immorality, in her, for it is written, because he has found indecency in anything. And the school of Hillel say, He may divorce her even if she spoiled a dish for him. See, that's ruining your dinner. That's what that means. For it is written, because he has found in her indecency in anything. And then it cites R. Akaba, I think is the way you pronounce it, I'm not sure. But it's a rabbi. And it says, he says, even if he found another fairer than she, for it is written, and it shall be if she find no favor in his eyes. So some in the school of Hillel went even as far to say that if you find another woman that's physically more appealing to you or attractive to you, go ahead and divorce your wife. Okay? So this is the cultural context in which Jesus is speaking. There's those who have this conservative interpretation of what Moses said, those who have had more of a broad or liberal interpretation of what Moses is allowing. And you notice there in verse 2 it says, And the Pharisees came up, and in order to test him, asked, Is it lawful for a man to divorce his wife? Now obviously this was a tense subject, right? It was a hot-button issue in Jesus' day, much like it would be in our own day. It would be like asking someone who they're going to vote for in the middle of a very intense presidential election, right? Or asking someone what their particular stance was on a sensitive moral issue like abortion or gay marriage. Typically, these are not questions that we ask strangers. And even if, we, if we're talking to someone that we know well, we would be more inclined to ask them in private rather than in public. And so here's the test. Jesus is a rabbi. He's publicly been addressed now and asked this question. Here's the test. Would Jesus side with the more conservative interpretation or the more liberal? And recognize that his response or his decision could have grave consequences. Some speculate that the Pharisees actually asked Jesus this question because of the recent events that had taken place with John the Baptist. And that if they could get Jesus to say something that would incite Herod or make implications that Jesus was favorable of John the Baptist's stance regarding Herod's marriage, then maybe Jesus would face the same end that John did, and Herod would take Jesus' head too. So how will Jesus respond? How will he handle this test? The second heading, second point here in our message is Jesus and marriage. Jesus in marriage. So we've seen Jesus in culture, which sets the context, and now Jesus in marriage. Look there in verse 5 through 9. 
And Jesus said to them, because of your hardness of heart, he wrote this commandment. But from the beginning of creation, God made them male and female. Therefore, a man shall leave his father and mother and hold fast to his wife, and the two shall become one flesh. So they are no longer two, but one flesh. What therefore God has joined together, let not man separate. So first of all, what Jesus does here is he places Moses' words in context. In the larger context that God had for marriage. And he cites here, so they're citing Moses in Deuteronomy. He cites a number of passages from Genesis, right? God's original intent for marriage. So what Jesus is saying here is that Moses' provision for divorce, he says this explicitly, was due to the hardness of man's heart, but it was not God's ideal. And so, instead of what some people were doing, instead of recognizing Moses' words as a means of limiting the ill effects of divorce, many used Moses' words as a pretext for divorce, a means by which to justify the breaking of the marriage covenant. And Jesus indicates this was not God's original intention. So Jesus shifts the focus of the debate. Instead of focusing the debate around the grounds for divorce, Jesus changes the conversation and addresses the original intention for marriage. James Edwards states it this way, quote, he's a commentator, New Testament commentator. He says, you do not learn to fly an airplane by following the instructions for making a crash landing. You will not be successful in war if you train by the rules for, breaking, for beating a retreat. The same is true of marriage and divorce. The exceptional measures necessary when a marriage fails are of no help in discovering the meaning and intention of marriage. Jesus endeavors to recover God's will for marriage, not to argue about possible exceptions to it. So what we see here is that Jesus, as he shifts the focus of the debate, his emphasis here is not on how can I get out of marriage or what would justify me getting a divorce, but Jesus' emphasis is on God's original intent and purpose for marriage. Now, with that in mind, notice he states three truths regarding God's intention for marriage. The first truth is this. Marriage is between a man and a woman. Look there in verse 6, and we read these words. But from the beginning of creation, God made them male and female. So one of the things we see here is that marriage is not the invention of man, but it was created by God. And God has determined that marriage is a relationship that consists of one man and one woman. Not one man and many women, which would be polygamy, right? Not two men or not two women, but one man and one woman. Now, we could, we could talk about the issue of polygamy and tease that out a little bit more, but I don't think that's really the pressing matter of our own day. But rather, the subject of homosexuality, I think, is a subject that the church must address with clarity and with a great deal of sensitivity and love. Here we see, according to the Scriptures and in other places in the Scriptures, that homosexuality is not the intention that God had for man and woman in their sexuality and in the covenant of marriage. Let me also say, though, that when it comes to the subject of homosexuality, I have enormous respect for Christians who struggle with same-sex attraction 
and yet deny themselves because they want to be committed followers of Jesus Christ and pursue Him in obedience. And let me say publicly as well that I am delighted for such individuals to find a church home here at Berea. And I trust that by God's grace they would find us to be a loving and supportive and encouraging community. So marriage is between a man and a woman. Secondly, we see the second truth regarding marriage that Jesus states here is that marriage is marked by an intimate union. Verses 7 and 8, we read, Therefore a man shall leave his father and mother and hold fast to his wife, and they shall become one flesh. So they are no longer two, but one flesh. So here we see that marriage is representative of the deepest intimacy and union that can take place between two people in this world. It's greater than the intimacy that exists between a grandparent and a child, or a parent and a child, or a brother or sister, or any other human relationship imaginable. In marriage, the impossible happens. One plus one equals one, right? One plus one equals one. God's purpose in marriage is that two people become one mentally, emotionally, spiritually, physically. And in this way, marriage, as Ray read for us this morning from Ephesians 5, marriage is a reflection of the intimate union that exists between Christ and His bride, the church. Christ is in us, and we are in Christ. Third, the third truth, marriage creates a permanent covenant. Marriage creates a permanent covenant. Look there in verse 9, and Jesus cites Genesis or, or he says, what therefore God has joined together, let not man separate. Again, we notice that male and female together in this intimate union are not joined together simply by themselves, but God has done this. This is a oneness and a union that is a work of God. And in God's original intent, there was no place for divorce. God's original intent was that marriage would be a, characterized by a monogamous, intimate union that was enduring and permanent. And any departure from that pattern is not God's ideal. Now notice the radical nature of Jesus' teaching. The religious leaders are looking for loopholes, right? Loopholes out of marriage. And Jesus speaks to them of God's original creative design. Marriage is God's creation and marriage is to be permanent and it is to be an intimate union. So, so much for Jesus attempting to placate or please the school of Shammai or the school of Hillel or skirting the possible consequences of Herod's wrath. Jesus speaks into his own day in which divorce was widely accepted and he speaks with clarity concerning the intention for marriage. Now, what is our culture's approach to divorce? John Adam and Nancy Williamson have written a modern book on the subject of divorce. It's entitled Divorce, How and When to Let Go. And this is what they write. Quote, your marriage can wear out. People change their values and lifestyles. People want to experience new things. Change is a part of life. Change in personal growth are traits for you to be proud of, indicative of a vital searching mind. You must accept the reality that in today's multifaceted world, it is especially easy for two persons to grow apart. Letting go of your marriage, if it is no longer fulfilling, can be the most successful thing you have ever done. Getting a divorce can be positive, problem-solving, growth-oriented. 
It can be a personal triumph, end of quote. Well, in such a culture, Jesus speaks definitively concerning God's purpose for marriage. And Jesus indicates that divorce is not a success. It's not a personal uh, triumph. It's not a positive. Rather, it is a cause for grief. It is always an aberration from God's original design and purpose. Therefore, we should recognize as Christians that our commitment to marriage is not to be gauged by um, our self-fulfillment or desire for self-fulfillment, but one's commitment to marriage must be rooted in their commitment to God's Word and His purposes. Now third, Jesus and remarriage. This is found in verses 10 to 12. Look there in the text. Jesus and remarriage. Verse 10, And in the house the disciples asked Him again about this matter, and He said to them, Whoever divorces his wife and marries uh, commits adultery against her, and if she divorces her husband and marries another, she commits adultery. So the shift here that's taking place in the previous verses is that Jesus was speaking publicly, and now He is privately with His disciples in interaction with them, a personal conversation. And away from the crowds, Jesus explains this idea. Whoever divorces his wife and marries commits adultery, and if she divorces her husband and marries, she commits adultery. So up to this point, the discussion has revolved around divorce and marriage, but this is the first mention of remarriage, okay? So before, the conversation was about divorce and marriage. Now, remarriage is mentioned. Now, at this point, we should mention that there is an exception clause in Matthew chapter 19. So, if you really want to understand Jesus' teachings on this, you have to compare it to the other gospel accounts in which Jesus taught on this matter. And in Matthew chapter 19, verse 9, Jesus says, And I say to you, whoever divorces his wife, except for sexual immorality, and marries another, commits adultery. So Luke and Mark, so we have four gospel accounts, four accounts of the life of Jesus, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John. In Matthew, Mark, and Luke, Jesus offers this teaching on marriage and divorce and remarriage. Now in Luke and Mark, they do not record the exception clause pertaining to adultery, but Matthew does. So so why do we find it in Matthew and not in Luke and Mark? Most commentators seem to agree that Mark and Luke did not include the exception clause because in Jewish culture, everyone assumed that adultery was a justifiable grounds for divorce. In fact, as we've already seen, this is the one thing that the school of Shammai and the school of Hillel could agree on, right? That indecency, according to the words of Moses, at least meant sexual immorality. So this is the one thing that they agreed on. Therefore, based on Moses' words and Jesus' words, as recorded in Matthew chapter 19, I believe we can say confidently that adultery is biblical grounds for divorce. We also should note that the Apostle Paul offers one more exception. Paul was writing to the church in Corinth, which was a very pagan and immoral city. And Paul was aware that many of the people there in the church were new converts. They had just come to Christ, and they had been converted, but perhaps their spouse had not. And so what were they to do? These new Christians that found themselves in marriages where they were married to individuals who were not trusting, believing, following Christ. Well, Paul gives them this command in 1 Corinthians chapter 7, verses 12 to 16. To the rest I say, I, not the Lord... That if any brother has a wife who is an unbeliever 
and she consents to live with him, he should not divorce her. If any woman has a husband who is an unbeliever and he consents to live with her, she should not divorce him. And then he says, but if the unbelieving partner separates, let it be so. In such cases, the brother or sister is not enslaved. God has called you to peace. Wife, how do you know whether you will save your husband? Husband, how do you know whether you will save your wife? Therefore, what Paul is saying here is that if you find yourself in a situation in which you are... Now, if you're not married yet, you shouldn't marry an unbeliever. That's another sermon, okay? You shouldn't marry someone who's not a Christian. But if you find yourself in a marriage in which your partner does not share the same commitment to Christ, the same love for Christ, they're not a professing Christian, Paul says stay married anyways unless the unbelieving spouse simply will not remain in the marriage. Still commit yourself to that person. Love them, serve them, give yourself for them. Commit yourself to being faithful in that marriage as long as your spouse will permit you to. Now, considering these, so summary here, okay? Considering on this section, considering these exception clauses, the historic Protestant position has been that divorce is prohibited except in two cases, adultery or the desertion of an unbeliever. An unbeliever leaves the marriage and says, I just, I will not be married to you. I mean, you can't do anything about that, right? So those are the two exceptions. We should also say, though, because I know this is a reality, that if there is ever abuse in a marriage, the Bible condemns abuse. That should not be kept private. That should be brought out in the open. And the church and state should the church and the state should intervene to protect the one who is being abused. Now, the other matter is regarding remarriage. So divorce is prohibited except in the cases of adultery and desertion of an unbeliever. Remarriage is prohibited except in three cases. A spouse dies, and then that, uh, the spouse that is living is free to remarry. Or one has been divorced because of sexual unfaithfulness. Or one has been divorced because an unbeliever has deserted them and they are free to remarry. Now, I've read a good bit of material on this issue. And honestly, some of the interpretations that are offered are rather convoluted and confusing. But it still seems to me that the historic Protestant position seems to be most consistent with the plain reading of Scripture. Now, let me say this as well, though. These are permissible exceptions according to the Scriptures. But they, again, are not ideal, nor are they commanded. Isn't this Jesus' point all along? So even in the situation where if you find yourself, you're living with an unbeliever, even though being married to someone, for a Christian it could be very difficult for them to be married to someone who has a totally different worldview than they do or doesn't believe in Christ, isn't committed to following Christ the way they should. Still, Paul says, be committed to that person as long as they will allow you to and love them and serve them. And even in the case of adultery, as destructive and as painful as adultery is, Jesus does not command divorce when adultery is committed. He simply permits it. Even in the case of adultery, I believe it's consistent with the spirit of Jesus' teaching that a couple should genuinely pursue a path of restoration before considering divorce. If it's possible, 
You want to do everything you can to restore the marriage. Now, fourth and finally, Jesus, marriage, and discipleship. Jesus, marriage, and discipleship. What I want us to do here in considering this uh, section is I want us to step back just a little bit from these immediate verses and consider this passage in the larger context of the Gospel of Mark. So we've been walking through the Gospel of Mark for a while now, and, and many of you know, because I've repeated this over and over again, that Mark is broken up into two main sections. You have the first eight chapters that present Jesus as the kingly Messiah who holds all power and all authority. And then you have the second section of the Gospel of Mark. It shifts in chapter 8 where Jesus is presented as the suffering servant. He's come to die for his people and to give his life as a ransom for many. Now, as we're in that second section, Jesus at this point in Mark's Gospel has given two predictions concerning his coming death and resurrection. And in giving those two predictions regarding his coming death and resurrection, he's also explained the implications of that for discipleship. So he says, I'm coming to die, and then I'll be raised again. And because of that, that has implications if you want to follow me. Okay? So in Mark chapter 8, verses 31 and 34, it says, And Jesus began to teach that the Son of Man must suffer many things and be rejected by the elders and chief priests and scribes and be killed and after three days rise again. That's what he will do to secure our salvation. Then he says, Implication for discipleship. And he said to them, If anyone would come after me, let him deny himself and take up his cross and follow me. So we talked about this last week. I think it was last week. Not only is the death and resurrection of Jesus Christ the basis for our salvation, and that in dying and being raised, He bore our sin, He paid the penalty for our judgment, and He saved us if we trust in that sacrifice. But it is also the paradigm through which we should understand what it means to follow Jesus. If we are to follow Jesus, we also must take up a cross and follow Him. Now, Does it seem strange to you that in the midst of speaking of his coming death and resurrection and explaining the implications of that death and resurrection upon discipleship, that Mark would insert this teaching about marriage and divorce? I mean, maybe at first it seems kind of out of place. Because everything up to this point has been talking about discipleship. This is what it means to follow Jesus. You got to, you know, so does this seem kind of randomly inserted? Listen, listen to this quote from uh, Gary Thomas out of the book, The Sacred Marriage. He writes, quote, To spiritually benefit from marriage, we have to be honest. We have to look at our disappointments, own up to our ugly attitudes, and confront our selfishness. We also have to rid ourselves of the notion that the difficulties of marriage can be overcome if we simply pray harder or learn a few simple principles. Most of us have discovered that these simple steps work only at a superficial level. Why is this? Because there's a deeper question that needs to be addressed beyond how can we improve our marriage. What if God didn't design marriage to be easier? What if God had an end in mind that went beyond our happiness, our comfort, our desire to be infatuated and happy as if the world were a perfect place? What if God designed marriage to make us holy more than to make us happy? Now, let me say that there are many, many joys in marriage. And God has created marriage so that we can enjoy companionship and intimacy. But what if God created marriage not primarily to make us happy, 
but ultimately in the larger scheme of things to make us holy, to make us like His Son. See, our culture says that the ultimate purpose in marriage is self-fulfillment. So if you find yourself in a difficult marriage, or you get bored with your marriage, or you don't feel like you're getting out of your marriage what you expected to get out of it, then you should leave. But the Scriptures are clear. Christians may find themselves in hard or difficult marriages, but the solution is not to get out. Rather, the response of a Christian is to take up your cross and follow Jesus. This is part of what it means to be a disciple of Jesus Christ. Gary Thomas again in The Sacred Marriage writes, The first purpose in marriage beyond happiness, sexual expression, the bearing of children, companionship, mutual care and provision, or anything else is to please God. The challenge, of course, is that it is utterly selfless living. Rather than asking, what will make me happy? And just in case we don't grasp it immediately, Paul underscores it. He says in 2 Corinthians 5.15, Those who live should no longer live for themselves, but for Him who died for them and was raised again. I have no other choice as a Christian. I owe it to Jesus Christ to live for Him, to make Him my consuming passion and the driving force in my life. To do this, I have to die to my own desires daily. I have to crucify the urge that measures every action and decision around what is best for me. Paul is elegant regarding this fact. In 2 Corinthians 4.10, he writes, We always carry around in our body the death of Jesus, so that the life of Jesus may also be revealed in our body. Have you ever considered that, as a disciple of Jesus Christ, a paradigm for your marriage is death and resurrection? Death and resurrection. And listen, there's good news in this. You're going to do a lot of dying, all right? But resurrection is real. And we've said that a number of times in our series in the Gospel of Mark, haven't we? If you want, this is, this is the key to a joyful, happy, thriving, flourishing marriage. Death comes before Resurrection. The good news is that if you die to yourself, that by embracing your cross, you will come to know Christ more intimately and personally. So some will struggle in their marriage even till the day they die. But my friends, Christ, if you take up your cross, will meet you in the challenges of your marriage. And if you have a good marriage... Or by God's grace, you have companionship and intimacy with your spouse and you're growing in your marriage. Understand that this is also the key for you. Tim Keller in his book, The Meaning of Marriage, which is an excellent book, and some of our home groups have done this book, writes, quote, If two spouses each say, I'm going to treat my own self-centeredness as the main problem in the marriage, you have the prospect of a truly great marriage. And isn't that true? And if you find yourself in a difficult marriage, in a hard marriage, let me, let me say, my friends, that God can redeem your marriage. God in His grace can redeem your marriage. Do you know that studies show that two-thirds of those who are in quote-unquote unhappy marriages 
claim to be happily married after five years if they just hang in there and stay married. Five years later, they hang in there and stay married. They're much more likely to say, it's, it's good now. Not perfect. No marriage is perfect, right? But we made it through. Let me encourage you, though, if you find yourself in that situation, don't seek to do this alone. Okay? Don't hide. I would encourage you that if you find yourself in a difficult marriage, talk to the elders of the church here at Berea. We would be delighted to help you in any ways that we can. Open up to someone else in our church body that you can trust, that will be committed to walk with you and pray for you. Consider Christian counseling. And before you go to someone who calls themselves a Christian counselor, get good advice about who you go to and who you go to see. But my friends, God can change your marriage. God can redeem your marriage. And I'll have to say that one of the greatest joys I've experienced as a pastor is to see marriages redeemed and restored. Do you see that... To be a disciple of Jesus Christ, to follow the one who laid down his life in order to rescue his bride from eternal wrath and condemnation has huge implications for your marriage. This is the one we follow. And you can't separate the two. He laid down his life to redeem me. He laid down his life to redeem us, his bride. He died so that I could be forgiven for all the ways in which I have dishonored God in my sexuality and all the ways in which I have dishonored God in my marriage. And so now as I approach my spouse, I must love them with that same gospel love, with the sacrificial love of Golgotha that caused the Son of God to bear the judgment and wrath for my sin and to set me free. My friends, listen, as a church, we have a lot to say, don't we, about this matter. And it is this gospel that will free, and it is this gospel that will lead to healthy, joyful, thriving, flourishing marriages. May this gospel inform our marriages and may our marriages increasingly be all that God would have them to be. Let's go to the Lord in prayer. Father, we thank you and praise you that you have created marriage and patterned marriage after your eternal plan to save a people for Yourself. And Lord, forgive us for thinking that we can do marriage apart from that, apart from that gospel. That's the whole purpose of marriage, is to reflect that gospel. And so, Father, I pray that You would forgive us where we have fallen short. Lord, I know that there might be some here this morning that, whether it's out of, has been an ignorance in the past, or perhaps just rebellion, They recognize now that they have not honored you in these matters. Perhaps there are some here this morning who have committed adultery against their spouse. Perhaps there are some who have divorced and recognize now that it was a selfish decision that they should not have made. Perhaps there's some here who are struggling in different ways with sexuality. All kinds of ways in which we might realize that We have fallen short of your standard.
Father, I pray now that as you convict and as you reveal those ways in which we have fallen short, that, Lord, it would cause us to go to Christ and receive the forgiveness that you offer us in him. I thank you, Father, that Christ died for all those sins and many more, and that we can know your redemption if we confess those sins and trust in Christ and commit to following him. And then, Lord, I pray for all of us as we think about marriage, that the gospel would, in fact, inform our thoughts and the way we relate to our spouses. May our marriages be increasingly representative of the gospel, and may we increasingly be committed to putting the interest of our spouse before our own, dying so that we might live. And we pray that we would experience the joy of flourishing marriages for your glory. And it's through Jesus Christ, our Lord, we pray. Amen.